from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first passage is from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Our second text comes from... 1 Peter, the third chapter, verses 13 to 22, can be found on page 220 in the New Testament portion of your Bible. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, this old, old story roots us and grounds us in faith. Would you break it open afresh to us once more so that we would be changed, so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in our day, uh, to be referred to or to be described as religious, or to be called a religious person uh, is not necessarily a positive attribution. When someone says, oh, you're really religious, I don't know about you, but that lands in sort of an awkward way because it has this sort of negative connotation. Amy Hollywood is a professor at Harvard Divinity School, and she says that, that, that people today, when they hear the word religion, they really think about three things. They think about dogma, doctrine, and rituals. That's what people think of when they think of uh, religion. They also think about not sort of this amorphous thing that takes place, but it's very much rooted, very much concrete, very much connected to an institution, a religious institution, that, that one who is religious is by default bound to a religious institution that promotes and supports certain dogmas, doctrines, and ritual practices. And these institutions, not just the term religious, these institutions, religious institutions, are also viewed in a negative light. Some would say, even today, that being affiliated with a religious institution, being affiliated with a church, actually stifles, diminishes true spirituality, authentic spirituality. You're not going to find it in institutional religion because institutional religion robs people of an authentic and free and self-determined and emotive experience with the divine, right? There is no doubt that a deep suspicion of institutional authority across various sectors in the world sort of shadows our existence, but it seems that at least on the surface, the religious landscape is where we find this uh, authority question the most, or this suspicion actualized in the most acute ways, right? Because we see it all around. People are still putting their money into banks, that institution. 
People still go to college. They still go to school. They still affiliate with those institutions. They still participate in the marketplace, in the institutions of capitalism. They still join clubs and organizations and societies, even though this list of institutions that I have just named and many more like them have actually let people down in the past. But we're still participating in them. But it's a little different, isn't it, when it comes to religion? It seems that the decline is much more sharp than those other institutions and the ways in which people affiliate with them, right? I mean, just take, for example, the Presbyterian Church USA, this denomination that our church is a part of. We have lost close to 800,000 members since 2005, from 2.3 million to 1.5 million. And this data bears itself out across denominational lines, across affiliations in religious communities in the United States. The Pew Research Group says that 23%, or basically one-fourth of all Americans, self-describe as having no religious affiliation. This group is now cleverly called nuns. Not nuns, Roman Catholic habits, not nuns, N-U-N-S. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S as in the negative, as in no, as in no religious, formal religious community or group. That percentage of nuns has actually grown since 2007. It's up by 7%, which is the equivalent of 20 million people since that time. 20 million more people since 2007 self-describe as no affiliation. Millennials of all the generational groups, millennials born from between rather 1981 and 1996, that demographic, that generational demographic, self-reports 35% have no formal religious affiliation. There's a subset of the nuns that is called, is known rather, by an acronym, SBNR. Some of you have heard of this. Spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. It's actually a subset of the nuns uh, group. And there are at least three characteristics that I want to elevate here that sort of describe this group and their sort of spiritual practices. First, they intentionally detach from religious communities. They're intentional about not being a part of a church or a religious organization or group. They will often cite hypocrisy. They will cite legalism. They will cite mandatory theological subscription to be a part of that group as reasons why they do not want to affiliate. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they have a high confidence, and I just say this descriptively. I'm not saying this negatively or in a pejorative way, but they have a very uh, strong confidence in their ability to discern the divine on their own. They are convinced that they have within themselves a certain measure of skill to figure out who God is and what God wants, to develop their own spiritual life apart from anybody else. That's number two. The third and final thing is that they're prone to what David Brooks called several years ago, flexidoxy. Flexidoxy. Flexidoxy is sort of like a cafeteria spirituality, right? 
You kind of go here to the buffet and there's a little bit of Christian, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of atheism. You just kind of put it together as it relates to the preferences that I bring to the buffet line. And I pick and choose what sounds good to me and I leave everything else behind. And within this sort of subgroup, this spiritual but not religious, you see this negativity toward the concept of the religious and the concept and practice of religious institutions. A few months ago, I was, uh, I was in the company of a senior administrator who, uh, as part of her professional role, oversees a museum in a major metropolitan area. And as it often happens when one finds out that I'm a Presbyterian minister, they feel the need to tell me all their thoughts about who God is and their thoughts on the church, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. And so I just listened as my new friend began to talk about her experiences. I grew up in a home where we didn't really go to church, she said. I, I, I believe in God. I actually pray but I'm not part of a church because I don't believe in institutionalized religion. I don't need the church to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I don't need the church to tell me who God is and what God wants because I can figure that out on my own. She's definitely in the camp of spiritual but not religious. And this type of conversation is becoming more and more frequent in our time. And truth be told, I totally get it. I mean, I understand why it's happening more and more, right? Because the institutional and the organized church as we know it has been far from perfect. There are plenty of moments, even today I could think of a few, where we drastically fall short of a standard that Christ has set for us as the people of God. We're inhospitable from time to time. We're self-centered in our faith from time to time. We're exclusive in our faith from time to time. And the world has paid attention, and they've seen it. And in many cases, the ways in which we live and what we profess, they, they don't align. So you take that, right? You take our hypocrisy and our inability to reach the standards Christ has set for us, and you take that and you couple it with with hyper-individualism, where, where we say we can figure it out on our own, we may need Google's help from time to time, but really we have the skills to figure out this spiritual thing on our own, and what you observe is what we are currently observing in the religious landscape. Add the hypocrisy to the rugged hyper-individualism, and you see the sharp slide in religious affiliation. I said these things to my new friend, sort of in a softer way than in preaching. And then I went on, and I, and I said this. I said, what, what if I were to say something like this to you? Or what if someone said this to you? I believe in art. I believe we should engage art. But I'm not a member of any museum because I don't believe in institutionalized art. I don't need the museum telling me what constitutes as good art and what constitutes as bad art. By default, in your decision to exhibit certain pieces and to not exhibit other pieces, I can figure that out on my own. I don't need your help. 
And by the way, access to art should be totally free. You shouldn't charge people to come and visit your museum. You are impeding them from experiencing something transformative and potentially life-changing by institutionalizing it and keeping it from people who can't afford it. She smiled at me, and her smile basically said, I appreciate the attempt. You know, some people would say we are living in a post-institutional society. Maybe you've heard that? We're living in a post-institutional society. And then, and then and folks will, will, will say, see, the, the, the rapid decline of Christianity in the West, at least in part, is due to this post-institutional disposition or impulse. But I say that we are still deeply institutional. We are deeply institutional. From our education, to our economics, to our government, to our art, to our religion, to the ordering of our professional and social lives, right? Because that's what human beings do. We find something of value. We find something that is good, something that transcends us, something that transforms us, and we want to get a handle on it. Right? And so we invent language to talk about it. And we create standards as to how it should be engaged. And we create structures by which it can be engaged and by which it cannot be engaged. This is how, as Peter Berger put it, one of the greatest religious sociologists of our time, he said, this is what it means to make meaning of the world. That is the essence of religion. Religion can be then, in that way, very secular. It doesn't have to include God. Religion is basically the ways in which we institutionalize and structure that which is beautiful, that which is good, that which is a blessing to us. I would suggest to you this morning that we are all religious, every single one of us, but we're not all spiritual. We're all religious, but we're not all spiritual. And I think that's part of what Acts 17 is all about. So the Apostle Paul arrives in this text uh, on the scene. He comes to Athens as part of his preaching mission. Not Athens down the road, but Athens in Europe and Greece. And he, and he shows up, and Luke tells us, the writer says, that he became deeply distressed to see that the city was filled with idols. This word distressed that we translate from the Greek to the English is actually better translated, I think, as the word provoked. When he sees the idols, he's provoked to move. He's provoked to act. He's provoked to speak. And so Paul begins to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us for the reconciliation and redemption of all people and all things for the peaceable kingdom of God. And he shares it with the Jews in the synagogues, and he shares it with the, with the philosophers in the marketplace. And some of those Athenians uh, do not take too kindly to his views, and they do what people often do when they don't like somebody else's ideas. They start calling him names. They call him a babbler. And it's so interesting, this Greek word. It, it literally uh, means one who picks up seeds that have fallen from the beak of a bird. In layman's terms, uh, a, a sort of a seed hoarder, 
a seed picker. But they're not good seeds because they've been chewed up and and they fall off. And they're beginning to call Paul's words sort of like uh, the scraps, things that are not useful, things that are not of value. And that's where we get this word babbler. These seeds that fall from the bird's mouth, they say, that's your philosophy, Paul. That's your religion. It's this, these crumbs that don't have any value. But there are some that want to hear more. Like I suspect today, there are some who come into this space very skeptical, who want to hear more about this good news called Jesus Christ. And so they take Paul to to Mars Hill, which is essentially the Supreme Court in Athens. And and it's a place where philosophers would debate ideas, especially new ideas. They love the avant-garde. And here's Paul bringing these new ideas, and they want him to talk more about them. And so he he goes to Mars Hill, and he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ this gospel of love and grace and reconciliation. And he does what is, what is instructed for the Christian to do in 1 Peter 3, to be ready to give a defense of the hope that lies within you. And his defense goes like this. Athenians, I see how religious you are in every way. The word that we translate here from, to religious rather from the Greek is a combination of two Greek words. It's a combination for dread and the words, word for God, sort of in a pagan sense, the gods. Dread of the gods. But, it, but it's deeper than just sort of that, sort of, uh, the sort of on, on face value. It has this idea that the Athenians know how to revere something. Paul's not speaking critically. He's actually speaking positively. I see that you're very religious. Now, if someone says to you today, I see that you're very religious, we, we don't like that term. Paul is using it in a very positive sense. You know how to revere. You know how to honor. You know how to give loyalty to something. You know how to make a commitment. And this impresses Paul. And so he goes on, he says, For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. This is really interesting. There's actually a backstory to this uh, shrine and this inscription to an unknown God. Atef Gendi is the president of the Evangelical Theological Seminary in Cairo, Egypt. And, and part of his doctoral studies, he wanted to figure out what this inscription meant and how did it come about. And, and here's the story. In the 6th century B.C., a plague, we don't know what it was, hit Athens. And so everybody, all the citizens, begin to make uh, right sacrifices at all these shrines throughout the city. And guess what? The plague doesn't stop. So there's this philosopher from Crete who happens to be living in Athens at the time, and he says, hey, I think I figured out what's wrong. There must be a god that we don't know about. So let's create a shrine to an unknown god, and then let's worship at that shrine. And that's what they do. And sure enough, guess what? The plague stops. So then what happens? All the Athenians start building a bunch of shrines to unknown gods because they want to make sure that their bases are covered. You see, their, their gods were very punitive, unlike the god that Paul is inviting people to give their loyalty to. And so what you have here in in Athens, is what one scholar, Joshua Jibb, calls a luxuriant forest of idols. And I wonder if our location today in 2017 is not all that different. I wonder if in Atlanta we live amidst a luxuriant forest of idols. 
I mean, could Paul not say the same thing to us, right? Atlantans, I see that you're a very religious people. You worship at the shrines of your own ego. You worship the shrines of power. You worship your schedules. You worship your success. You worship your prestige and your wealth. You worship your self-righteousness. You worship your piety and your religiosity. You worship pleasure and your own autonomy. These are shrines, Atlantans, that you have built with your own hands. And they are far from spiritual because they are indeed far from God. The truth of the matter is, friends, we are very, very religious. We're very religious. It's part of who we are. We know how to worship. We know how to revere. Like the Athenians, we know what that means. We know what it's like to give our allegiance to something or someone. We know what it's like to make a commitment. We know what it's like to give our life over to a passion or some desire that we have. The question for the Athenians, as it is for Atlantans today, is what will we revere? That's the question. The question is not whether, whether or not, rather, we're going to be religious. We're all religious. But to what end? To what end? For Paul, true spirituality is reverence of the God who is above all gods. It's loyalty and commitment to the God who has made a loyal and loving commitment to the world. This God that's not contained in, in things that are made by human hands, but is, has, has made the hands that make those things. This God called Holy Spirit, this God called Jesus the Christ, the one whom God raised from the dead for the reconciliation and salvation of the cosmos. Paul does not criticize the Athenians for their religious impulse, but instead asks them to channel it in the right way. I'll close with this. What's interesting, and I didn't get to read the rest of this, you know, the, the Bible sometimes writes, sometimes writes in, in sort of triumphant prose, right? In this triumphant uh, sort of narrative where Peter, for example, in Pentecost, in two weeks, we're going to read that story and, and all these people come to faith and this is big party and this big Billy Graham sort of evangelistic moment, right? Well, Paul lays out the gospel, lays out the kingdom of God for the Athenians, and they begin to mock him. It's not a triumphant story. People start walking away. Some people say that's the craziest thing we have ever heard. Even today, we, we hear that tone, right? It's the craziest story. I mean, in Paul's time, I think about this. You know, he writes later to the church in Corinth, and I wonder if this experience in Athens helps shape this writing where he says, the gospel is foolishness and a stumbling block to people. And I wonder if he, he got that from that experience. But today, you know, people still mock, they scoff, they reject the good news of the gospel. Like the Athenians, they, they say it's the craziest thing we've ever heard. That true spirituality is not obtained through our own will and our, and our own creation, but it's given as a gift of grace by faith. The Athenians made their choices, and people today make their choices. They're going to make their stands. They're going to take this sermon, and I don't mean this sermon. I mean the sermon of the gospel. And they're going to make a choice. Their hope 
may be built on God or it may be something else. They're going to channel their religion in a particular way. People are going to do that. But the question for us this morning, and I end with this, is what will you do with your religious impulse? Because it's there. Will it move toward the God who is our hope, who is eternal, or will it move to the things that we have created with our own hands? That is a question that can change everything. Amen.